1: This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Lawiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old school basketball to a new school audience. And today we bring you the story of Perry Wallace. He never played in the NBA, but his impact within basketball is still felt today. Here are just some of Wallace's accomplishments. He was captain of the basketball team at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. He was voted most popular student, and then he graduated from Columbia Law School. He once gave a lecture at an environmental conference in Paris and delivered a keynote address in perfect French. He was asked to represent and speak for the Federated States of Micronesia at the United Nations. He spent his adult life either teaching law or practicing law. This is an amazing list of accomplishments. He accomplished what would be two or three lifetimes for other people. But the thing that was probably the most important thing he did was to become the first black basketball player to play in the Southeastern Conference or SEC. When he accepted a scholarship to Vanderbilt University. But to understand how he arrived at Vanderbilt, I need to take you back to the beginning of this story. He was born on February 19, 1948 in Nashville, Tennessee. His parents were Perry Wallace Sr. and Hattie Wallace. They were a very straightforward, hardworking couple who believed in education. Not only were all of the kids expected to work hard at their studies and maintain top marks in school, but they were also expected to represent the family well when in public. Visitors who walked into their house would often hear classical music coming from the record player, or they would hear language records in French, German, and Spanish that the kids listened to in order to learn those languages. To say that the Wallaces ran a tight ship would be an understatement. They attended church faithfully and always set the example of excellence for their children in terms of education and behavior. But the environment was not always the easiest. When Wallace was growing up, Nashville was still segregated. There were white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods, white schools and black schools, white businesses and black businesses, white movie theaters and black movie theaters. Once when he was walking home from an outdoor basketball court, some white kids pulled up in their car and pointed a gun at Wallace in order to scare him, and then they laughed as they drove off. Even from a young age, Wallace loved the game of basketball. He could often be found playing at the local park, but for For him, it was just an outlet for having fun. He never dreamed that basketball would change his life. When he reached high school, he did not even play on the basketball team at first since the activities that dominated his attention were school and playing trumpet in the All-City band. His best friend Walter Murray was a clarinet player in the same band. Music was his primary activity outside of academics. Because of the focus on school, it made Wallace and his siblings feel a bit like outsiders in their own community. They spoke multiple languages, regularly earned academic honors, and were all extremely intelligent. My intention is not to go too far down this tangent, but this part of the story really resonated with me. Both of my parents are immigrants to the United States and they stressed academics for me as the best way to move up the socioeconomic ladder. My parents both have noticeable Latino accents when they speak. But as you can plainly hear, I do not have a Latino accent. I have what is known in the world of voice and diction as a West Coast non-accent. Which makes perfect sense because I was born and raised in Southern California. And like Wallace, I was a bit of an outsider in the Latino community because I was so academically minded and I spoke well. My best friend Marco was actually born in Mexico but was raised with the same mindset that I was, so I wasn't completely alone. Anyway, this part of Wallace's story hit me so deeply. But this story is not about me, it's about Perry Wallace. By the time he started at Pearl High School, he could already dunk a basketball, but had still not considered playing for the basketball team. But once the basketball coach saw that this 6'5 man-child was walking around campus, he knew that he needed to get Wallace on the basketball team. Now It did not take long for Wallace to become the best player on the team. He was their leading scorer, rebounder, and best defender. He led the team all the way to the 19th 1964 Tennessee Black State Championship. Yeah, you heard that right. Back then, Tennessee had separate state championships for the white schools and the black schools. And 1964 would be the final year that the state would have separate state championships. The following year, Tennessee changed their laws that would move all sports teams into a single championship, which allowed for black schools and white schools to begin playing each other. Now this was a huge step forward for the state of Tennessee. During the first year of integration, Wallace and his Pearl High School teammates were scheduled to play against Father Ryan High School, a wealthy, private, and all-white team also from Nashville. So, <laughs> Father Ryan was the top-ranked school in the area, and this would be a test to see just how good Pearl was against white competition. Now, I won't drag this out for you. In a very close game, Father Ryan won 52 to 51. It was a hard-fought battle, but it opened the eyes of the white fans, many of whom were watching black players for the very first time. They got to see these particular black players were just as good as the best white players. Now, that sounds so weird to say in 2022 when a full three-fourths of NBA players are black. So, in this next part, But I'm going to say this plainly because there's no way around it. As I try to share basketball history with you, I want to make sure that I do not sugarcoat the events. My goal is to always give it to you straight. In the 1960s, there was a negative stereotype that black players folded under pressure. The thinking was that you did not want to have a black point guard running your team in the closing minutes of a close game. The mental pressure was just too much. In a clutch situation, most coaches wanted a white player handling the ball. Even as I say that, it sounds ridiculous. Anyone who thinks that black players cannot handle pressure just need to watch Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or Magic Johnson or Bill Russell. Those four players have 27 NBA championships between them and Russell was playing for the Celtics at the same time as the Perry Wallace story was happening. As I said, Perry Wallace and Pearl High School opened the eyes of the white fans that were at that game to support Father Ryan. They saw that black players could really play. In Perry Wallace's senior year of high school in 1966, he led his team to the Tennessee State Championship. They were the best team in the entire state, white or black. The victory was a huge morale boost for players and fans from Nashville's black community. They proved that good basketball teams can come from anywhere. The date of that championship game was March 19, 1966. Now That is a significant date. Right after he won that championship, Wallace went straight home to turn on his television because that was also the night that the all-black starting five for Texas Western University defeated the all-white University of Kentucky for the NCAA National Championship of College Basketball. It was an enormous night for black players who were treated as second-class citizens in so many ways. But now it was time for Perry Wallace to choose a university to attend. He had a number of scholarship offers and he needed to decide where his future was. This is a good place to take a break, and I will be right back with the rest of Perry Wallace's story.
0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
1: Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of Perry Wallace. When we left off, he had just led his team to the Tennessee State Championship, and now it was time for college. A good part of the southern United States was still segregated, and the environment was rough for a black player. Perry Wallace's family suggested that he attend a university in the north where teams had been integrated for years. There would be less pressure on him than if he had stayed in the south. All of the good black players from the south went to school in the north. He visited Purdue University in Indiana, which had been integrated for years. In fact, the entire Big Ten Conference have been integrated and being a black player in the Big Ten was not that big of a deal. It was a good school where he could get a fine education and play at a high level for the basketball team, but he also wanted to stay close to his family and accept that scholarship offer from Vanderbilt University which was right in Nashville just a 10-minute drive from his house. But his family warned him about playing there. They said things might be okay for him on campus, but things would be awful for him when it was time to go on the road and play away games in Mississippi, Georgia, or Alabama. They feared for his safety, and rightly so. But Perry Wallace decided that if anyone was going to take up the task of being the first black player in the entire conference, that he was that player. He consciously decided that he would be the person to break down barriers for future black players interested in playing in the SEC. Vanderbilt, is a tough school to get into for the average high school student. It is the only private school in the entire conference and by far the smallest school in terms of student enrollment. It has a world-class medical school and has extremely high academic standard. But Wallace was the valedictorian of his high school, so that part was not a problem. The coaches thought that Wallace would not only be a great addition to the team, they also did not have to worry about his academics. Along with Wallace, there were 54 other valedictorians in the incoming freshman class in the fall of 1966. Like I said, Vanderbilt is a tough school to get into. What Wallace did not know was that Vanderbilt also brought in a second black player from Detroit by the name of Godfrey Dillard. Back then, freshmen were not allowed to play in the varsity in the NCAA. So Wallace had to play his first year on the freshman team, which doesn't count in any of the record books. Now, This is how bad things were for Vanderbilt with two black players on their freshman team. The University of Mississippi canceled both games against Vanderbilt. Their excuse for why they could not play that first game was because they had double-booked themselves and decided to play their other game against a community college. For the second game, they said that the players were falling behind in their schoolwork and needed to catch up. However, in reality, Mississippi traveled almost 200 miles away to play a different community college instead of playing Vanderbilt. I guess the players were not that far behind if they could still go on the road and play someone else. In one freshman game against the University of Kentucky, Wallace dunked the ball. Hard. Coach Adolph Rupp went ballistic on the sideline. And on a trip to Mississippi State University, the fans there said the most awful things to Wallace and Dillard. For the entire game, they sat right behind the Vanderbilt bench yelling the most vile things that you can think of. As I said earlier in the episode, I do not want to sugarcoat history, but I also do not want to repeat what was said to Perry Wallace and Godfrey Dillard. Just imagine having to hear the worst thing that could be said to a black person and then having to listen to it for two straight hours while playing a basketball game. I find it amazing that they were even able to keep their composure and play well. Wallace began to wonder if he had made the wrong decision in choosing Vanderbilt over Purdue. But he returned for his sophomore year and this time he would be playing on the varsity, the first black player for Vanderbilt and the entire conference. Godfrey Dillard was gone. He had dropped out after that first year and returned to Detroit as he had trouble adjusting to the culture of the south. Again, it was time to go down to the University of Mississippi to play a game. Now This time they could not simply cancel the game, this was the varsity. The only choices that Mississippi had be to either forfeit, resulting in a loss in the standings, or actually playing the game. And they decided to play the game. The Mississippi players were particularly rough with Wallace, hitting him with elbows right and left. At one point he got punched in the eye, but the refs did not call any of these fouls. He realized that he was on his own out there. At halftime, he decided that his best revenge would be to dominate the second half and win the game. And that he did. He played like a man possessed, grabbing every rebound, making every putback shot. On the defensive end, he completely shut down his man. Vanderbilt won the game 90-72. The hatred that he felt at Mississippi unlocked something inside of him that let him take his game to a new level. He began to dominate the conference on the inside. He became an absolute force. He continued to deal with abusive language hurled at him in nearly every single road game but he fought through it all and he excelled at both his junior and senior years. He was chosen as a team captain in his final year, and despite all of the abuse he received at the hands of his opponents and opposing fans, he never had an issue with his Vanderbilt teammates. Except for this, while his teammates were cool with him in practice and games, around campus they did not socialize that much. His teammates mostly hung out with their white friends, and Wallace, by his own admission, felt more comfortable hanging out with the other black students. It was not like they never hung out with white students at all, just not that often. In the final seconds of that final game at Vanderbilt, he wanted to put an exclamation point on his career. He scored 29 points and pulled down 27 rebounds and finished the game with a ferocious dunk that had the student section going bonkers. At the time, dunking was illegal in NCAA basketball, but the referees, to their credit, called it a layup, and counted the basket. Now it was time to graduate. The year was 1970, and his play at Vanderbilt got him an invitation to training camp with the Philadelphia 76ers, who were coached by Dr. Jack Ramsey. While he dominated play in college, at six foot five, he was undersized for a power forward at the NBA level. After a couple of weeks, he was cut from the team and never played in the nba in the meantime he decided to stay in philadelphia and play for a minor league team called the delaware blue bombers of the eastern league and work as a high school teacher and coach at john bartram high school where earl monroe had graduated from just a couple of years earlier while he was there as a teacher for only one year he got a chance to coach a young player by the name of joe bryant joe bryant would go on to play in the nba and have a decent career but his biggest legacy was that he is the father of kobe bryant After that one year, he was hired by the Urban League as a liaison in Washington DC. He then went on to Columbia Law School in New York City. And after that, he worked for the city of Washington DC as a prosecutor before taking a job as a law professor at George Washington University. As I mentioned at the top of the show, he gave a speech at a conference in Paris in perfect French and he represented Micronesia at the United Nations. What I had not mentioned was that he also defended a teenage girl in Nigeria who was accused of breaking Muslim Sharia law. It was a landmark victory as the girl was acquitted and spared the death penalty. As you can see, Wallace had an incredible career in law. But his legacy as a basketball player should never be forgotten. If you turn on your TV to watch an SEC basketball game, just look at the makeup of the teams. From Vanderbilt to Auburn to Mississippi to Kentucky and Georgia, there are black players all over those rosters. But Perry Wallace was the first one. There was nothing easy about what he did. But he knew that someone had to be the first one. He changed the way that people in the south view black basketball Players. In 2004, his number 25 jersey was retired by Vanderbilt and hangs in the rafters today. Wallace is now comfortably retired in the Baltimore area with his wife and daughter. Well that is it for today. Join us next time when we share the story of when Larry Bird played a game left handed Because he was bored and needed a challenge. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to SportsHistoryNetwork.com to find out more about this and other Sports History podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories in the past. Take care and see you soon.
0: Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network.